Welcome to The Hack, the straight-talking smart tech podcast where we discuss the ever-changing world we live in today. It's time to start thinking differently. So tune in and buckle up for some home truths as Hull and East Yorkshire's very own digital tech experts talk transformation and change, focusing on people, process and technology. Oh, back out, we? Certainly are. We've got a, a new home today, haven't we? Aye, what a setup this is, isn't it? Thank, thanks, Sam. Thanks for having us. Hello. And we've got Glenn Mead, who's kindly come over on the train, haven't you? Met us this morning, um, bright yeah. and breezy. Yeah. Thank you, first and foremost, for, for being on the show. Kick us off, Glenn. I always like to ask, if we were sat around a dinner table now, how would you introduce yourself? If someone said, what, Glenn, what is it you do? What, what is it you do? Uh, I like to answer that by saying I'm a psychologist and then watching their reaction. <laughs> I, I used to say I help people be more effective in what they do by understanding how they think and how they communicate. But if you say I'm a psychologist, you get a better reaction that way. I remember seeing you speak. We were just talking. Was it four years ago, five years ago? When May, I, maybe even longer. longer. Maybe six yeah, years ago. Six years. I, I remember speaking at a Martin Johnson event, a T2 talk he did at him over at the Deep, and you just captivated me because I was a big fan of the Chimp Paradox book. And back then you was working under Dr. Steve Peters and yeah. leading his, his coaching programme. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I worked with Steve Peters' company called Chimp Management Limited. And I was the director of all the business programs. And I've been there for about three and a half years. My job was to explain how to use emotional mind management to get the better out of yourself and other people. And I would fo- face the sort of business organizations like uh, well, coming along to Sea Life, T2, big organizations, supermarkets, NHS, you name it. And I'd talk to staff to say, look, it's normal to have emotions. And if you can understand when they're going to come from, what the triggers are, and then you can work out your options when you're in a calm mind, then you're going to be better off when the moment does happen. And that it's really, really important to accept it and accept that's the way we are. Human beings, we do get emotional. I think, interestingly, Paul, all three of us are huge fans of the Chimbaradox. It gave us an insight, so nice and simple into psychology. But what I'm really interested in, Glenn, is... I was looking at your CV, and guys, have you seen it? I, I said that we had to print I, it out. I was just talking to Glenn about his CV off air, and it's just amazing. I said he's done a few things, and he's been a busy guy. The main ones I'm interested in, Glenn, is to speak on. He's using the army, starting off in the army. Yeah. Do you think that give you a good setup for leadership and psychology? Leadership, definitely. Psychology, secondly, because I don't really get explained to you what's going on. But now, after the event, I can realise how the training that the military go through is spot on. You might not understand it at the time, but the reasons why you have to do things and why you do drill, why you get told to do things immediately is because the speed of your brain works. But yeah, certainly nine years in the army in the good old Yorkshire regiment called the Green Howards, 1st Battalion. So I joined as an army officer in 1990 and served until middle of 98. So just under nine years. So some experience. So I think we're going to jump straight in, Sam. Let's jump into question one. Yeah. And let's see where we go. So question one for you is, what one of three books that have greatly influenced your life? Great. And all the questions are great. And I've read them in different ways, but I've filled up three here. And I thought, how many books can I put down here? So the first one was Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's a worldwide bestseller, but a lot of people surprisingly haven't heard of it. So Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist from Jewish extraction in Vienna during World War II. He got taken off to Auschwitz under the Nazi regime, survived Auschwitz, got marched to Dachau. Survived the death march, survived Dachau, survived, and then wrote a book about his experiences, what he saw in Auschwitz. And he came up with this theory of, we're not trying to struggle to be the winner or to be in power all the time, but we're trying to make meaning, make sense of what's going on. Why are we going through this situation at the moment? Why am I feeling the way I am? 
fantastic book. It's available in all good bookshops right now. And it just made me step and step back and say, you can go through somewhere like Auschwitz and be almost detached and objective about it and recognize I'm a part in this big system and it's not all about me, but I can understand why things are happening. And then you can make sense of the world a bit better there. It's, it's quite a difficult book to read because it's... Mm. it's really... I guess the psychology side there really ties in with what you do as well. So have you picked up good points from that, which you can relate to different theories that you have as well? Or? Yeah, suddenly taking the time to be objective and step back. Yeah. And then to be able to step back and be objective, very often you need to ask hypothetical questions like what if, or if you're in that situation now, how would you manage that? And sometimes the best way of doing it is to have someone else ask you the questions. So when we talk about Andy's Man Club, about talking, that's how it's influenced my life, about being able to say, I can step back and reflect on what's happened to me in my life. You said my CV's interesting. A lot of it was unplanned. And it was moments during that CV where I found myself really at rock bottom, out of work, having been a whistleblower in a company and all that, married with two kids, a house we couldn't sell renting a place in Sheffield, just moving, my wife was out for work and I was out unemployed because of a problem I had at a different company. But being able to step back and say, this is happening, but it's not the end of the world. And you're able to stand still despite what's going on in your emotional brain and say, all this mess is happening around me. And then even just by thinking, I read Victor Frankl's book and he was in Auschwitz. So you end up going, get a grip of yourself, what's wrong <laughs> without beating yourself up. But that book is absolutely fantastic and is grim, unfortunately, but what's really interesting about the end of it is he went back to Vienna, started up his practice again, and as his office manager, he recruited an ex-SS Nazi guard. It's incredible. Because he forgave him. Yeah, yeah. 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 I've read it and I think the bit what I took from it, which really blew my mind, and just linking to Andy's Man Club as well, is the power of hope. And it, it completely changed my whole thinking. And correct me if I'm wrong, I'll paraphrase for a second. What he noticed when it was near Christmas or birthdays, a lot more people died. Straight, I don't know if it was straight after or straight before, coming up to the birthdays, and they these, they was able to get through to that point, and then all of a sudden, because they'd made it to that, that big occasion, they lost hope, they was like, I can't do this for another year. Mm. And there was just waves of people dying because of lack of hope. Because well, he, he was a doctor, he was also employed as well, employed, he was made to be a doctor in the camps, and he noticed that Christmas 1944, the rumour going around was that the Red Army's on its way, and the Germans were going to re retreat. So everyone was going around, would be free by Christmas, would be free by Christmas, 44. And Christmas 44 came and they weren't. And the death toll of things other than typhoid, other than being beaten to death, unexplained deaths in January 45 was the highest he's ever seen. And he said he could only put it down to that they lost hope. They gave, gave up the will to live. That, that was the one when I'd read it, Luke had read it, Man Club was talking about it. It was like, I think what's so powerful about Man Club, we talk about it all the time. Sometimes when I've had a bad day, you go there, these questions are exactly like what you just mentioned there, the how, the what, the who, the why, mm. and it gets outside of your own psyche, doesn't it? Which at times is such a challenge for people. Mm. What tips would you give for people around that? Well, being in that position of not knowing what to do or what to ask or... Yeah. It's got to start with acceptance. It's got to start with recognising what your emotions are. That's what the chimp paradox will say. Don't try and fight your emotions. They're there for a reason. And your chimp is a good thing. It's trying to look after you. It also likes having a good time. And sometimes you do things you don't actually want to do. But recognising that and being able to speak to someone saying, I, there is anger at the moment, there is sadness, rather than I'm an angry person, I'm a sad person, I'm miserable, I'm a bad dad, bad partner. Just say, at the moment, there is anger in my life, or there's fear. And being able to talk to someone saying, what are you worried about? What is it that's going to happen? When do you think it might happen? And to just carry on with those open questions, all those open questions of what, why, where, who, when, how. 
and if you could do something. And the more you talk to someone, you can do it yourself. You could write down a diary, write a diary at the end of the day and just put down how was today on scale of one to 10, 10 being fantastic, one being don't really want to talk about it. That might be the only entry. But if you write down something saying, this is how I feel, and come back to it the next day, when you look at it again the next day, you're emotionally calmer because it's not the same you. It's the time has changed, you things moved on, but it's allowing you just to say, I can have the time to reflect and you know, investing time in yourself is really, really important. I think, I think the, like, we've all done that where we've sent an email that we shouldn't send. We've all done that way. Try and put one in code before it goes. Because yeah. I don't want encapsulate letters. <laughs> encapsulate yeah. letters, yeah. shouting. But I think when I first read The Chimp Paradox, there was a thing about writing the journal or writing something down. And what I started to do, Chimp Out Best, I think it was called. And I started to send emails to my future self. And I would just label it Chimp Out Best. And I've still got someone I look in my Evernote at. And you, exactly like you just said, then you just trigger that thought. I'm like, who is that person? And what what is it? Is it because I think that the hardest thing and you talk about this, Paul, a bit, don't you? You always say that you struggle disconnecting from the chimp being you and good or bad. You yeah. think it's bad, and I'm like, it's not good or bad. It's just a chimp, in it. Is, is that the way? What would you say, Paul? I went my chimp. Uh, I always put that down to the bad side of me when I was struggling, and when I had outbursts, I never used to associate the chimp with something good and something to protect mm. was looking after me. It was always probably an angry outburst, uh, something to do with my emotions and my feelings. But over time and learning, I've learned how to handle my chimp mm. and how to, now I've named it. So we name our chimp and then we can look after it and we can listen to it, can't we, and put our emotions into a, should we say, in a category or into a box mm. and then move on. Yeah, but but the, yeah, I, I think too. interesting. Me and Paul went through it. We've been following it a bit of Wim Hof. I don't know if you've heard of the guy. Oh, I've watched his uh, program. He's incredible, isn't he? And we're having a bit of a challenge where we you know getting the cold showers and everything. And Paul, be very careful what we say on this podcast because Paul made the mistake of what did you say? I said in a podcast a few months ago that I want to go and swim in the sea in January. In January, yeah. And what did we do over the weekend, Paul? My wife said, "Oh, I came in. I'd been out somewhere, and I came in, and my wife said." Oh, Leon said, do we want to go for a drive up to his little holiday home that he's got and we'll have some lunch and whatever? I said, no problem. I said, I'll just get a shower and we'll go for a drive. I got there, sat down. I thought, oh, he'll make me a cup of tea in a minute, which... Did I? Good cup did. of tea? It good. Oh, bang, a cup bang of tea. Bang a cup of tea, wasn't it? And then I got thrown a towel and a pair of shorts. But, oh, by the way, did I give you the towel and shorts? No, my wife. <laughs> and it's because they'd conspired. <laughs> as soon as they threw me this towel and shorts, I knew what was going on. And he went, we're going for a swim in the sea. And in it, the North Sea. In the North Sea. And it wasn't calm, was it? No, it wasn't. But what we were saying there is, though, it's the power in it of the mind. Yeah. And what we were saying, how did you feel once we did not want to go in, did we? I didn't want to go in. No, we didn't. As soon as we got in, it was absolutely freezing. But after we'd been in there for a minute and a half, we was cool with it, weren't we? Literally. Yeah. But... The only well, reason we got out is that a tad was taking us. We, I think we was going to end up in France, weren't we? It Kelly. was going to end up in France. And we had to get back here to meet yeah. Ellen, didn't we? Was it just the two of you? Just the two of us. No. If you did it by yourself, would you have done it? This is the thing. Probably not. So social, what we call social conformity. They say, I'm going, you're going. Well, right. Yeah, and, and I so, thought, he's going in, so I've got to do it. And I'm so glad that I did because it just shows how strong the mind is because after 60 seconds, we didn't feel that cold anymore. And it was, wow, we've done it. We're in, was 
neck high while I was going under the waves because I've only got short legs. But, but good excuse not to go in too far, isn't it? Excuse not to go in too far, but it was good. And it just shows that your chimp was telling you, you're not going in, you don't want to go in, you don't want to do this. But actually, you're stronger than what yeah. you actually believe you are. So on psychological delayed gratification. Yeah. So your body's saying, get warm, get dry, get some food, because I don't want to do this painful thing. But your delayed gratification is, I know this is worth it. So being able to manage that chimp or manage your emotional side and say, I'm going to put up with this pain and this discomfort. It's only going to be about two minutes maximum. And then I'll be out there with a nice bathrobe thing around me and a hot cup of tea and I'll be fine. Just go through it. And sometimes for people who are suffering from depression, anxiety, or even getting nervous coming into a room doing a podcast, I get nervous. You just think, why am I here? Why am I doing it? And when you don't want to go to the pub because you think, oh, I'll just sit and watch telly because I can't be bothered. A friend's saying, come on, there's Andy's club tonight, Andy's man club tonight. It's Monday. Looking for, I'll see you next week. I look forward to seeing you. You've got a reason why you have to go. Yeah. And it just gets you through that. And before you know it, you're walking there or heading off or doing the job you need to do. Well, going back to the chimp, Leon was walking to the was walking down the beach and Leon said, you're going to hear all these voices that are telling us not to go in, not to do it. We're going to be telling ourselves loads of different things, but we are going to do it. And we did. And it the deal was all the noises telling me to get out. But we did it. And yeah, and I felt absolutely brilliant afterwards. After, absolutely brilliant, yeah. I liked about that Wim Hof program was the, those celebs who decided to say no. Or was it Professor Green? Yeah, yeah, said, very powerful. First time ever I've said no. I don't think you know, footballer as well, wasn't it? He was in it as well. Yeah. He was really yeah. tough on himself, wasn't he? Yeah. Really tough on himself. Yeah. So those images that you think, oh, I have to do this because that's what is expected of me, or I'm a tough guy, and what I'm all these things that people think I am. It's all presentation. Like me talking to you right now is me presenting me in the way that I like to be seen. But in my head, when I'm by myself, I'm a completely different person. I won't tell you what my name is or my alter personality. What's your, but... your chimp called? I'm interested. Come on. Well, funny, when I went for the interview at the management, you had to draw, on the big flip chart, you had to draw a chimp. And it was like when they said, everyone go and draw a thing. And everyone going, oh, I can't draw. You know? And then we had to give it a name. So I wasn't sure to call mine Amy, as in amygdala. Oh, okay. Or uh, Bono, as in Bonobo. So okay. I called myself Bono. I said, not you two, just Bono. But another friend of mine, he, he had a chimp. <laughs> I just got it. I just got it. <laughs> very good. Very good. A friend of mine called his chimp uh, Cato. You remember the old Peter Sellers? Uh, yeah. It, yeah. Cluso, Cato would come out. Not yeah. now, Cato. Because <laughs> he comes out when he least expected. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a quite good. Of and, yeah. But the thing about the chimp, yeah, is being able to recognize whatever the emotions are. You're motivated. You're motivated all the time. When people say, oh, are you feeling motivated today? It's generally, uh, am I feeling positive or am I feeling something else? But motivated means whatever your emotional brain is saying, go and do right now. So if you're motivated not to go in the sea, you're motivated to run away from it. Only your delay gratification is saying, I'm going to do this because I said I wanted to do it and it's worth it and it'll be over in three or four minutes. So understanding where your motivations come from, why they're there, how quickly they can pass and how not to beat yourself up. Even mm. when you've got a bad day, saying tomorrow's another day, I can do something different tomorrow. What have I learned about today? Write it down. Speak to someone about it. Yeah. But I think the hard thing on that is, exactly like you mentioned back to the first book, Victor Frankl took meaning in one of the most horrendous situations. And I think the challenge we've got now is we live in a world where it appears externally. You know, if you look on the Instagram, the Facebook, it looks like people have got instant success and that's not the case, would you say, Sam? Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a false reality, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. We've got to do the work. What's the next book? All right. These ones I won't go into so much depth, but the other, <laughs> it's all good. The, the other two are novels, actually. One's called Ordinary Thunderstorms by William Boyd. And he was a screenwriter for some one of the James Bond films. But Ordinary Thunderstorms, a short novel, but it's a story of a scientist who 
stumbles on the crime scene and in an, in an attempt to help someone, he inadvertently puts his hand on a murder weapon and then he's on the run. And it's sequence of unexpected incidents and it just shows you how fate turns things around and it all ends well in the end. But it's a, it's a riveting story. So many different characters come in and he's at risk all the time throughout London while he's trying to track down what's gone on to him and what's happened to him and his life changes changes completely. But it makes me think about fate and resilience and understanding what is it you really want? What are your values? And if you've got that sort of core sense of yourself and your values, then you, you know, no one can take anything away from you. Love but that. I recommend it. Ordinary thunderstorms. Short chapters, which is about my attention span. Sounds good to me, that. Sounds yeah. good to me, that. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm interested in that comment you just mentioned there, though, is if we just go back, if I'm hearing that my interpretation of that is getting to the point where the only person's opinion about you, what truly deeply matters, is yourself. Is that the way I'm taking that? As long as it, what you're doing is not hurting anybody, not illegal, because I'm a big believer in, in this side of it, because the only way you can love other people is you've got to first love yourself, and we sh we all struggle with that. Mm. That what I would say. I don't know if anyone disagree with me on that. No, I think as well. It's everyone has everyone's always thinking about what others think about themselves, but it, it, everyone's doing it. So you're you're only worried about yourself. Everyone else is always worried about themselves as well. So it, it's mm. everyone's in the same boat with that, aren't they? And what's the point in, in worrying about what other people think when they're there to be busy worrying about them themselves? What I'm saying. But, but what's the, the psychology behind that? Because I don't know who said this quote, I might get this wrong, but it's like you mentioned earlier that, that we project and it's, I am the person who you think I should be. And, and mm. we all try and play up mm. to be this image of someone else. When we, we spoke just before we jumped onto air and you was like, oh, I was, I've wore jeans today. And I had a little conversation with you where um, when I first got into the business I'm in, my business partner was very, were very traditional IT and people wear suits and shirts and trousers. And I always remember going to a, a big event about three and a half, four years ago. And we'd won an award and the company was said we had the award said you can't wear trainers i'll just wear trainers and i always wear trainers so i wore trainers and it's like a big thing back then but i think the pandemic has since lowered everyone's um, inhibitions i would say mm -hmm. about how we present because we are real and i was at an event this week in, in ireland i've been just come back from a, um, four days in ireland everybody on stage all the main people all these people who told us not to wear trainers and jeans was all wearing trainers and jeans. Because I it, think that's what you should have projected now. Projecting, that's, that's what it is. Yeah. I think, that's up, got a question to tie that back up. How do we get to, is that the way we need to transcend where we, the only opinion that matters is ourselves when we're looking at mirror? Would, or is it not? We're complex characters. And there's, I think, you know, social identity theory is that in order to get a sense of well-being, we rely on other people. So we're conforming to the rules here. We're all sat around the table. When I said I'm, only, I'm wearing jeans today, that is all I'm wearing. See <laughs> my camera actually. But, yeah. but we have rules and regulations about what's expected behaviour. And if I came across a little bit unexpected to you, you might think, oh, that's a bit peculiar. If you're not ready for it, yeah. you're going to be on edge because it's based on what your view is of what's appropriate. So in different circumstances, you're going to have different behaviours. You're both rugby players. Yeah. And so different culture there all the time. So we're trying to do anything in order to fit in because we realize that we are vulnerable creatures and we're social creatures and we need other people around us to help us. How surprising as men, we don't then go and talk about it when we say yeah, we need to talk to someone. Yeah. Recognizing what's really core important to you and your values, most of them are kind of gonna come down to survival. So for me, it's my family's security and my own personal physical security without doubt. And if I get scared, I need to run away and then realize later I wasn't really at risk, then I'm not gonna get upset about being startled. Whereas other people go, oh, I'll put yourself together, it's only, 
what are you getting upset about, what are you worried about? And then you work your way down to things that you think, okay, it depends on the context. Do I like to look smart? Yeah, I do like to look smart, but what does that mean? Do I have to wear a suit or could it be clean, casual? And above that is being polite to people. So it doesn't matter if you're wearing a suit or not wearing a suit, greeting someone else and saying hello and showing that you generally have concern for them. That's another value. And I reckon you can't go too far wrong. If you're going to be bad on yourself and beat yourself up, then I reckon you would project it on someone else as well, that you're looking for, going to criticise them in some sort of way. Look at verbally do it, hopefully not. But have a chip on your shoulder. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, or something in the back of your mind. Yeah. You're going to look at someone going, oh, I wouldn't wear that badge, or I wouldn't wear that, oh, that colour doesn't suit that person, but I'm going to tell them. Because it's so self-critical. So stop being self-critical. Don't beat yourself up. Don't criticise yourself for being self-critical. Well, that's a bit of an oxymoron. <laughs> but yeah. do you recognise that we're all human? Yeah. We are the people we are, the shape we are, the background we are. What do you, you want to carry on living and being enjoying life to the maximum? Don't worry about the past. Don't worry about the future because it's the present that you've got to deal with. Who knows what's going to happen? Today. No, love love that. That. That's it, isn't it? Love that. Yeah. No, love it. Next book. Oh, right. This one's much quicker to read. It's called <laughs> Tabby McTat. It's a children's book by Julia Donaldson. I'm not sure if you've got kids and you've read, kids, read it. I've not read it, but yeah. I'll, I'll put it on the list. So, you, she, other ones she did, she did the Gruffalo, uh, oh, yes. Room yeah, on the yeah. Broom. So, it's all rhyming. Uh, yeah, yeah, big do, pictures. Do yeah. And Alex Scheffler is the illustrator. But I like this one. Firstly, on the meaning for me and my family, it's my Youngest child was the person I used to read this to. The other's a little bit more grown up. Just come to how old are your yeah. children now? 21, 20, and 14, right. going on 30. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. She's <laughs> the youngest one. Has picked up on more on emotional intelligence because she's had so many people around her to watch. But so there's so much more savvy than the other two. But don't you think also as well, because I've got an 11-year-old as well, but more exposure, I think, with the tech as well to see things and yeah. study people, don't they? Yeah. Which, this is fascinating me in terms of the... My daughter goes on TikTok and I have it very limited and but we use it we try and use it for good within the household. But I was sat there thinking, she's just studying people. Mm. Whereas we never had the access to people, didn't we? We only had our mate we had to go knock on the door to go see. Whereas and they were always out, weren't they? They were always out. But then this weekend, they were sat in the caravan what we've got. And they was playing and they all went and met up at a disco on Saturday night in a virtual disco. You said this in a previous podcast. It's a previous podcast. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and what was what just fascinates me with that is some people say technology is bad. I, I love technology. Is it's controlled, it's safe, and I know who's in that room. Cause, but I'm lucky I've got an IT company, so that's not always the case. But there was meeting up with all the friends and having a social experience, which is I think it's just incredible to be able to do. What's your take on it from a psychology point of view? Don't dictate your life. Is yeah, it's a fantastic way of connecting and recognizing that uh, you ought to, if you can, get deeper in your friendships with those people. So research, I was giving you a talk last week on loneliness and talking and how to engage with people who you don't really know. It might be a stranger or it might be somebody who works. And you it's a hard skill. Yeah. And it was saying that at a time where we're more connected than ever with other people, Facebook has got 2 billion users a month that were more isolated because you, some research, can't quote who did the research, but they said that if you have loads of friends, that's just as bad as having no friends because it, it le leads to what they call role strain think the sense of obligation that I need to be in touch with all of you and I haven't looked at your Facebook today, I haven't looked at your messages and I haven't got time to reply and now I'm feeling guilty. So it ends up in like burnout, relationship burnout. You haven't got time to do it. And if you were to reach out to any of those people, which one would you choose of these yeah, 10,000 followers you've got to say in a bad day? So keep your friends close and understand, are they real friends? You know, so cool. People you look in the eye and having a, a con an engagement with you, go for a walk with, physically maybe you've seen them, or a few if they are remote, 
that you've spent quality time talking to them, getting to know them, preferably with a video camera. You can do it rather than being just digital. Yeah. But yeah, the connectedness of it is amazing. My son has met a lot of his friends. He's more introvert, didn't make friends naturally, but he's got loads of friends all over the world who he, he's only a handful. So he does stay in touch with them. Some of them he's actually got to meet face to face. So back when he was in his adolescent, he's still adolescent now, until you're 28, you're effectively adolescent. That's when your brain stops forming, 28 years old. He struggled. So the social side of it enabled him to have meaningful connection with people in the way of seeing and looking and understanding and being able to ask questions before it got to the stage of physically being with someone in a room and feeling maybe overwhelmed by that. My other two daughters are chalk and cheese. One's really introvert but gets on very quickly and the other one is very extrovert and wants to know everyone. Mm. And is into her sort of flamboyant dancing. She's the one I used to read, Tabby McTacty, which is a story of a busker who's got a cat and they're whereabouts in Britain it is, but the busker and the cat get separated and the busker goes off to hospital because he's had an injury and the cat goes off and lives with another cat somewhere else. And it's about friends who fall apart, fall away from each other, not because they've had an argument, but they just get separated and how the cat feels loyalty to his owner or his human companion and decides to go and hunt him down and finds him. But it's about, it's a story about love and loyalty. It's all rhyming, so it's great for kids to learn and you can read it together and the pictures are really good. And it's an element of innocence in there because the cat goes off and meets another cat and they go and live in a house where it's got three women who all live together in the house. And then the next page is, and all of a sudden they've got three kittens. Where do they come from? <laughs> so when you're talking to young children, you don't have to say, oh, let me explain what happened between the two cats. <laughs> it's just that innocence, your childish innocence. So I was reading this, but the themes that are coming through about the cat says, sorry, I've got to go. You know, I will be back, but I've got to go and see my friend and I'm going to find what's happened to him. And that's the thing about friendship and trust and loyalty, which I think is you will have a handful of friends for your whole life who you'll know. And um, at least I've got this in the car, didn't we? Actually, on the way. Yeah. And they're the ones that stick with you. And you pick up, you haven't seen them for a while, you haven't spoken to them, but you pick up exactly what you're Where you left off. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. We were talking, Paul, in the car, he, he asked how the mankle was formed. And I said, I just, I rang 60 and I said, I need you for an hour on a Sunday. And no, no qualms, no ask. Everyone was there. And then I said, I need you for an hour on a Monday for six, seven weeks. And there was all there only. Yeah. And that's what good friends are. Uh, no questions asked. No questions asked. Yeah. No, no love that. I think we should go straight on to it. We're on question show, but we'll get through these. So don't oh, right. yeah. The first one's always the hard one, you know, because it takes us off so much. But what is a feel-good song or music that gets you focused or makes you happy? Hot and Cold, Katy Perry. Hot and Cold, Katy Perry. <laughs> <laughs> Not, it wouldn't normally be my choice, but... I mean, it's fair, so it's not on Paul, isn't it? I like Katy Perry, though. And there's so many different levels to this, but my daughter loves it, my youngest daughter loves it, and we're all like it, and it is upbeat. And the link between mood and music is so strong across all different cultures and over generations that you'll just get that sort of sense of being upbeat. Another reason, if you listen to the lyrics, listen to the lyrics, you know, it's hot and cold, which is your emotional brain. Oh, like hot and cold. And I'd listen to it, and it's a distraction. For me, the music is a distraction. I think, okay, so it's getting me... Up, upbeat again and I look back and I think okay I'm blowing hot and cold I'm up and down and it's wrong and it's right and you can find yourself talking contradictory to yourself and you're thinking who am I so I was going to do that but I've gone and done that and now I'm going to beat myself up well just relax for a bit so that's a good story a good song I like the lyrics and with my youngest daughter we lip sync to it in the car 
<laughs> so it's a bit of fun. It's got nostalgic attachment. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Just I've Justine just been singing that in my brain. Yeah. <laughs> I've just been singing. Give us a give us a give us a little bit. You're cold now, yeah. But we were talking about gender bias earlier in the yeah. car. So the, the opening lines are: "You change your mind like a girl changes clothes." And I hear, that, and every time it says to me, "That's a sexist remark or gender gender yeah. bias." My daughters all lip syncing and points them and gesticulate in some sort of way here. Change your mind like a girl changes clothes. And they'll run with it. But I'm thinking, you've got to be so careful about things you say. And do men change their clothes? Often enough, changing your mind, we all change your mind, regardless who you are. So I'm trying to think, what would be the male equivalent to that? I'm not going to the pub. Yes, I am. You know, it's... Oh, I'm not going to the pub. Yes, I am. I'm going to the pub. I don't think we change our mind too much around that. No, I but... think we do. And I think we were talking, like the man club, how many people say they're coming on Monday? But they didn't go for that door the first time. We do change our minds. But I think the key point I'm picking up from myself then is not beating ourselves up. Yeah. Yeah. Enough's enough, innit, on that. Mm. Um, it's in with the next one, Paul. Right then, Glenn. What purchase of £50 or less has most positively impacted your life in the last six months? This is really hard. This is probably the last question I filled in because I couldn't think, well, did I get a gizmo of some sort or something, an artifact? And it came down to packets of seeds, tomatoes and sunflowers. So last year I had a good crop of tomatoes that well, grew to full size, but they didn't ripen. So that was, I should have made green chutney or something out of it, green tomato chutney, but it didn't. But we had massive sunflowers. So I thought I'd do the same again this year. So I bought them in February, sowed them in my daughter's bedroom in the attic until I could plant them out. And I've got about 14 tomato plants and about 10 sunflowers on the go. But what it's made me do is I have to go out and tend to them every day. I have to look at them after, make sure they're watered, uh, bring them in when it was cold at night time plant them out eventually, check the slugs and the snails and all the pests. So that is caring for something else, which takes your mind off me. That yeah. wasn't the reason I was doing it, because I like tomatoes and I like sunflowers because they... Sunflowers are beautiful. Like, sunflowers are so beautiful, yeah. aren't they? I think they're just... Yeah. My son got one for an award. And they brought a new thing in at school where if you do something nice, they, yeah. they give you a sunflower. And you just link it out. I was thinking, why do they do that? But as you've just said, that there, exactly that point. Yeah. I guess routine as well. Do you like routine? Is that... Does that fit nicely for you with that as well? I think we're all creatures of routine. Me being ex army, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, cool. but I do like getting up and I'm wondering, you know, we've got, we live in a terrace house in Sheffield, we've got a small garden and it's faced the southeast. So in this time of year, we've got the sun coming up. It's just nice to walk around in the garden whilst getting the kids out of bed, ready for school or work. And I'll check on them then. But whenever I'm doing teams training for other companies and say, we've got a 15 minute break coming up now and you will have 15 minutes and please don't do your emails. Go and get coffee, go and hang the washing out, go in the garden. I'll go in the garden whilst making a brew. And look at the tomatoes, look at the sunflowers and have wander around and get some fresh air. Because you need 20 minutes daylight a yeah. day, minimum, just to stay relatively stable psychologically. Whether it's sunlight or raining or whatever, just being outdoors. And uh, so I go out and thought, oh, I've got to have a quick look at the tomatoes. They haven't probably grown since the last hour when I looked at them. But yeah, it's, and the other point about that is we take for granted where our food's coming from. I'm not going to have masses and masses and masses of tomatoes, but you can go to the supermarket and buy that. But do we stop to think, where have these come from? And how much effort's gone into it. And how, mindful, yeah. and how vulnerable we, the whole world system is because of things that are going on in Ukraine and sunflowers in particular being there. So you've got loads from that. So you've got a bit of perspective, a bit of routine, yeah. a bit of like love and yeah. like, gratitude. Yeah, yeah. I like that. What we all like being self-sufficient as well, a survival thing. Yeah. A survival need to be able to eat, eat and drink, undergathering under to, can you, a need for autonomy. You want to make something happen, growing something or, or doing a project or jigsaw even. You're in control of that and you're going to finish it at some stage. And the same for the growing. It's nature involved, so there's a bit of magic. So, yeah, satisfaction. Yeah. And I, yeah, yeah. Uh, what Sam said, the satisfaction, there's routine. 
there's purpose. Yeah. All, all, yeah. all in that. And we all need that for our yeah. positive mental That's being. Massive word, purpose. Yeah. So important. It comes out in so much psychological research. Have you ever read the book by Daniel Pink called Drive? No. Really good. And it's all about purpose. Autonomy, mastery, and purpose, the three sort of areas he said you want to have some control. You can do, you can make things mastery that you've got an opportunity to get even better at it. And the 10,000 hours. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and the purpose at the end of it about why does this matter? Which comes back to Frankel. He who has the why can overcome the how, yeah. which was Nietzsche, but it came out in Victor Frankel's book. But the interesting thing on that, just to link into that, right, is I've worked with both of you guys professionally from consultancy and also personally. And the most difficult question I think for anyone to ask, and I answered this question myself, is what is it I really want? And it's such a simple question to ask. I asked this to you when you was in a different career before yeah. you're doing what you're doing now. I remember speaking to you and we were like, what do you want your business to look like? Where does it want to go? This was before you had this big offices, before you was doing what you're doing. And what does success look like? And mm. and it's such a simple question, but why is it so hard to answer? I don't have a clue when you asked me. I was, don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm just bubbling it along, but yeah, it, it is a tough one. It? But, but yeah, it comes back to purpose, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's all on the league. And I asked them both the same question, how much money is it you want to generate? And they both looked at me like, what? And I was like, you need to have a number there because money's just a resource. And if you want to do things in your life, it won't make you happy or healthy, but it'll give you options, will it? Yeah. And it comes back to that, that sense of purpose and answer this to you guys age ago. I'd, I'd work this out in terms of my purposes. I love people and I use money. But previously when I was more mind-led, I used to love money and inadvertently, because I run some big businesses, technically you take people for granted. And I had it completely the wrong way I figured out. So the, my sense of purpose is all about connecting people, meeting people, doing what we're doing now. And if I can link that to making money out the back of it, how brilliant is that? And can we open more man clubs? We can do yep. more connections, more mm. deep, meaningful things. But we're not taught that at school, this sense of purpose. Why is that? I don't know. Why are we taught at school? Big question about what do you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to be a helicopter pilot in the Navy. Then I wanted to be a doctor. And then it would change whenever, you know, every six weeks it would change. And now I'm in my fourth career, fifth career. I'm still not sure. But yeah, what is it we want? And what do we need? You want to stay alive, you want to feel secure, you want to be able to eat and drink and look after your family and feel that no one's going to come pointing a gun at you. Probably. Do you need to have lots of money? Do you, does it make you feel any better? I don't know. So I, I think education has got to change massively in this country. And my son yep. struggled at school, ADHD and then epilepsy, but now he's waiting to join the Royal Navy in about two months time, wants to get the security clearance sorted out. My daughter next from him is also an A-star candidate academic. And my son is really quite mature about it. Saying university is not for everyone. Maybe I'll go when I'm 27. I might go when I'm a mature student if I need to, if I want to. But he said, I need practical things. So have we had that option like we did back in the 50s and 60s of saying, you're 13, 14 years old, what do you want to do? Do you want to be apprentice in carpentry, woodwork, metal work? Do you want to go and learn how to do computer programming? Because these skills are all valuable. And I think Daniel Goldman wrote a book called Multiple Intelligences. Now, Howard Gardner, sorry, Howard Gardner, Multiple Intelligences, is saying that just because you haven't got an A-level or a degree doesn't mean to say you're not intelligent. And so talking about David Beckham being sports intelligent, who can kick a ball and curve it in that way that he does, bend it like Beckham, all these great sports people. They've got different parts of the brain that can pick up on things that a lot of us can't find. Yeah, we're talking about neurodiverse and, and people with autistic spectrum disorder, who have got so many skills that the rest of us, when we say the rest of us, other people who are new neurotypical don't demonstrate and display, but other people who back in when we were growing up would have been marginalized because they're different in some sort of way. We're all got talents to bring. And I think schooling, education, and what is it you want? Yeah, I think people need opportunity. Don't say 
you must leave school and this is what you're going to be for the rest of your life. Job for life thing. You know, we can all change. I got into psychology and coaching aged 33. Haven't been in the army for yeah, nine years. Like you said, they asked that question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Maybe yeah. that's not the question he's asking. It's what, this is the question you ask, which is obviously carefully worded because it's not what do you want to be, it's... What do you want? What do you want? And I think, yeah. but linking back to that, I'm trying to raise my children so that they find the passion. I'm really passionate about technology only because I'm dyslexic. So if I don't have technology, I won't have had the successes in the other businesses and careers I had without the technologies. That's my why. So I want more people to be able to do cool stuff with technology. But when you link that back through, here's some stats for you guys then, right? So we're creating content right now. So we know, we know content's king, right? We're starting to hear about the metaverse and all different things. And what I want you to think about is all of this content is digital real estate. That's what we're getting. We're creating digital real estate, digital assets. So this content hopefully will help different people who we know, but also it'll help all of our personal brands yeah. and, and it's content mm. and, and it's evergreen and we can chop it up and we can use it in all different ways. But I was talking to my daughter and about what she wants to do. She loves animals and all different things. But there's a, I forget his name, I think it's Harry or something. There's a young kid, I think he's, I think he's technically, he's classed as old now on, on YouTube. I think he's 10. But when he started, he started unboxing toys. And he's generating hundreds of millions of pounds per year. Yeah, I know they look Right? Opening toys that he loves and just video recording them. And he's earning hundreds of millions of pounds, right? Through sponsorship ads, because kids love watching him yeah. box toys. And you go look at them, there's tons of them, these gamers, these all different people. And... Because we've got this technology that's a platform, we're able to do things that we love. So let's take Wim Hof, for example. Wim Hof is famous and is massively wealthy, right, from, let's let's be frank, freezing his nuts off. Yeah. He freezes his nuts off and he teaches people how to freeze their nuts off. Yeah. Let's <laughs> break it. Listen to it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Love to argue with it. But he's <laughs> literally so passionate about what that does and also how simple it is to control our mind that people are just drawn to him and magnetised by him because he inspires us to be better than what we are. So for me, I think it's where school's got it wrong is school was to get us out of the field and the, out of the field and into the production, wasn't it? That's what it was, into the factory. We're now moving into that fifth industrial revolution where we're, we're connecting technology and purpose so it can do deep, meaningful work. Andy's man club is connected through technology and we do deep, meaningful work. So for me, I think it is exactly like you're saying, but I think what we need to be looking at schools for is trying to unlock people's hidden talents like you say what is it they truly love doing so when they're doing it you lose hours and hours and hours and then connecting that into some way of them making money and serving mm. the communities what would we all say i agree with i know somebody who's homeschooling their child and the way they do like a normal school they have their lessons during the day it's all planned out for them they're educating their daughter she'll come up with a topic that she wants to learn and she's passionate about learning it and they'll flood her with it. And and she is so clever because every subject that she's learned is what she wants to learn. And she absorbs it and she's an she's close to being a genius. But it's all been homeschooling it because she's had a passion for that subject and then they've taught her it and then they've they've bought her books on it and she's just absorbed it all. And I'm just thinking if you're passionate about something you'll be a success at it. You don't need motivating. And you don't need motivating. So you, you don't need, right, 11 o'clock you've got maths, 12 o'clock you've got geography, then you've got biology. It's just, right, she's passionate about this subject. She'll probably study it and study it, then move on to something else she's passionate about, but she's absorbed everything. I think the danger with technology and education at the moment is that if you want to find something out, you go on Google. So if you, at school, I didn't like geography at school and I gave up 
I was doing O levels, not GCSEs. And I gave up geography and I thought, well, if I need to know something now, I would go on, uh, on Google and Google it. And I'm sure my daughter, youngest daughter would have the same idea because we've got so much intelligence and digital information around us. You can find anything you want to up to the point where there's a power cut. There's no Wi-Fi signal. There's no 3G, 4G, 5G, whatever. All the phones are gone. And now we're back to, yeah, even going to be really negative nuclear winter. Yeah. We're trying to grow yeah. things. So yeah. back to sunflowers and tomatoes again. I'll be all right, Jack. So how do we then... You, what life skills have we got? And we're too sufficient with it. They're too yeah. dependent on it. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So I can see, I can remember you know, kids doing biology or science at primary school and they're growing seeds and they're watching tadpoles and doing things like that. And you're thinking, what stage are we going to have to all be able to rely on growing some a food of our own and helping people to recognize or you know, children to recognize that there are reasons why you have to learn these things. A friend of mine is a teacher and he sent a copy of a GCSE question after the exam had come out and it had three circles sort of overlapping each other. And the question was, could you work out what the area was so the law overlaps? And I'm WhatsApped him back and said, all I've got in my brain is my 15 year old O-level self going, and why do I have to know this? And obviously it's for problem solving and mathematicians, if you're going to go and design some airplane, you need to be able to deal with geometry and all the maths, if that's where you want to go. If you want to do that later in life, there's no reason why your brain wouldn't be developed well enough for you to go and learn those skills. Mm. It might not become a habit. You might not be able to do pi to 14 decimal places and feel really skilled at it, like 10,000 hours, but it doesn't mean to say you couldn't be proficient. So how much do we use technology to underpin base skills and how much of that is we're actually getting taught at school? I don't know. And that's the challenge because the challenge we've got is you look at Twitter, is it 156 characters or 200 characters? We've got all these skills to communicate yet we use our thumbs to yeah. communicate, which yeah. is primitive. I'm going with Tim, we're going to go to the next one. Let's jump on to the next yeah. question. Okay, so do you have a lesson from a failure of yours? Again, I thought question three was hard. Question four was pretty hard. What have I written down? Yeah, about your emotions, back to emotions again. So when you've got unwanted, unhelpful emotions, ask yourself, what is it you're expecting? So it's similar to what we were just discussing, what is it you want? And take the time to reflect on it. Don't rush from one thing to another. And don't use your emotions to label yourself. So in my youth, I used to, you get upset or angry about something and you think, oh, I'll work through it, but it will be lingering and there'll be some sort of displeasure or dissatisfaction, discontent at the end of the day. But you're carrying and, it still. Yeah. And I would have forgotten completely why I'm feeling angry or crotchety or why I'm being frustrated or why I'm worried, why I'm scared of, if I've got fear about something, but it's carrying over to everything else. Cause I never took time to stop because you think you're in control and you think you can hack it and you think get over yourself and you beat yourself up, but actually maybe it's you beating yourself up that's causing more of that anger or the self-loathing and the frustration. So being able to recognize what was it you thought was going to happen and why was that important to you and what emotions did you get with it? Cause you get positive emotions, obviously you get joy and love and sense of security and feeling, anticipating feeling good. And maybe that pleasure doesn't come. So then you get disappointed, but being able to recognize what I think is going to happen today is this. And this is how I'd like, if the worst comes to the worst, these are things I'd like to be able to say I've done about it. So my values, I'm going to do the most I can to make sure my values are in place. And if not, then how much is in my control? If I can't manage that, I'm not going to beat myself up for saying it was my fault or someone else's fault and not realizing the bigger picture. I love that. So taking the time, yeah. taking the time and sit and say, okay, so you're feeling a bit rubbish about yourself. You said you were going to go down and jump in the sea and you didn't. And you're going, mm, I can't do anything. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. And going down the garden to eat worms. Let it go. Let it roll. Let those emotions roll for a bit. And then realize, why is it? Because I'm disappointed in myself because this happened and I didn't prepare for it. But okay, what have you learned from that? 
And if we walk away without saying, what have I learned from that? That's when we lose the learning opportunity because we just go brush off and move on to the next thing. Same mistake comes around again. Do you allocate time for, for that or is it just reactive on reflection? Or? It depends actually, that's a good question. Because I've got to practice my own medicines when I practice what I preach, yeah, yeah. take moments and practice what I preach. I did meditation and I use a guided trans uh, meditation using, put some headphones on, listen to that. So do you use transcendent? I can't say the word. TM. Yeah, TM. Yeah, I, did a, I did some training on that in, I was in South Africa for a while and I did transcendent. That's quite, yeah, that's 20 minutes or so of just thinking of nothing at all. That's quite, yeah, takes you to a different place. I could see you thinking then, Sam, what, what that is. And if I have understood it right, because I'll learned this, is you repeat a word over and over and you get given a word. So I can't share what the word is, but the idea behind it, which I take, and I might be wrong, correct me, yeah. is, you know, like we're doing the cold water therapy and it shocks you so much that when you're in the cold, you physically can't think of anything apart from the cold. And all of a sudden, you get that break where all of a sudden you don't, you don't feel anything, do you? It's what I think Wim Hof's done really well. It gets you to that point really quick. Transcendental meditation is the theory where you repeat this word, but it can take 5, 10, 15 minutes to repeat this word. But the idea is because you've got no attachment to the word. So if I said to you, repeat cup, you've got attachment to the word cup because you know what it is. If you repeat this word, that doesn't mean anything to you. You just exhaust your brain mm. and you stop thinking. But it takes forever, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah, and, it, and yeah. And the mantra you're going through, you start off, I was working with someone training and you're sitting there with your eyes closed and the first thing that's going through your mind is, it's not working. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I sound like an idiot. What's meant to be happening? And when you eventually settle down, they say that's 20 minutes and you come back into sort of consciousness, you think, 20 minutes? Really? It felt like five. Yeah. And it was almost like going into the flotation tank thing, going for an hour, yeah. 50 minutes or an hour, and it feels like... You've had a proper night's sleep. Would you educate, we, we spoke off air about that, educators, what, this conversation you guys were having, because it fascinating. Flotation tank, yeah, we were talking about an echoic chambers, and we got on from that into flotation tanks, where it's, a, it's like a large bath with a lid on it, so it's like a space capsule, but it's a bath inside, and it's body temperature, and it's filled with Epsom salts, like the Dead Sea of near Israel, where you can float, and you just don't think it's got Epsom salts in, so you can't think. It's only about, probably about, 12 inches deep, so it's not deep anyway. And you go in there and lie down and you can have music on if you want to, you can shut the lid and you just relax and there's nothing to see. There's you know, a low glow of red light, but you're just there and you just relax and eventually you know, probably have 10, 10 minutes to settle down and you relax all the muscles, the muscles in your neck, which typically would be straining to keep your head out in the water if you don't like swimming and you just float. Because it's idea of being in space. Oh, that's lovely. It is like hallucinate from it, don't they? Because yeah. the, the mind's just wanting to concentrate on something. Your senses yeah. are all just gone. Yeah. So it brings you brings out some thoughts, which I, I, you go back to time as well. I can imagine that's a good practice to take that time and reflect and yeah. really concentrate and look at the bigger picture and be in the present day kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, d daydreaming. How many times when I was at school, you get told, you stop looking out the window, stop daydreaming. Daydreaming is absolutely, it's a little distraction. So the reflective practice you can, we can do TM and can sit there and meditate, but just being able to re help yourself realize that the world's not going to stop just because you're not paying attention to it. And that thing that's going to come and grab you, eat you or take your house away, probably isn't going to do that in the next five minutes. So that perspective of time and being able to be disciplined. I could go off on a tangent as you, cause you asked me, do I make the discipline of reflecting? I do. And, but I usually tie it in with meditation or I'll go and stand in the garden and I'll, if I'm not looking at tomatoes and the sunflowers, I'll be looking at the sky and thinking, what a lovely day. Here I am. How am I feeling? And I might go through, it's like a body scan thing. Am I rooted? Am I feeling nervous? Is there something there? But at the end of the day, I make a point of 
shutting down my computer as it backs up and then thinking, okay, draw a line in my book, draw a line under today. And I pack my desk away and it's now home time. Do you know, I love that because over the last probably couple of years, especially with all the stresses and strains that everybody's been under, I go walking and I'll put my headphones on, I'll go for a walk or do whatever. And I've got, I talk to myself when I'm doing the walk and I'm thinking, at this particular time, I'm out for a one hour, two hours. I have got no problems or issues at all in this two hours because whatever it, whatever problems you may have will be there when you get home. But in that particular time, I have got no problems at all and no issues. And I absolutely love it. And you just, when you say you, you get grounded for that moment or you do whatever, I'm just constantly, I do that and I go, I'm going to go out for a walk and I'm going to enjoy the moment. I've got no problems at all. Nothing can hurt me in this two hours at all. And I just go out and I absolutely love it. And it's, I, I, mm. I continue to do that. So the other meditation I do is mindfulness meditation, which is that sort of body scan, but yeah. another one's noticing. So you go out and you walk and although you're walking with purpose, you might not be going fast, you might be going slow, whatever, you're going A to B or circular route, stop somewhere, just stop randomly and stop and look up, look at a tree. Look at the water running or whatever is around you. Even if you're in an urban environment, just stop and look at the corner of a building, which you would never stop and look at normally. Yeah. So I think lockdown for my family and me, we went walking around Sheffield and some you could look. Which you'd never do prior to lockdown, would you? You'd never do prior yeah. to lockdown, would you? Ginnels and Genels, wherever you're from, I'm not sure what it is. Ten foot, we call them. The tower. Tennies. Tennies, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause oh, because, because you can only get a ten foot video. Get it? Uh, ten, yeah. ten foot. Where's Snicket coming from? Snicket, Snicket. I don't know Snicket. Yeah, and so yeah, we went to different parts, and it's I draw that sort of analogy to it being like your, a map of your brain, that you are going somewhere new, and you're making new neuronal connections by going down a different part. So your physical, your brain's representation of where you're going is changing. So your brain is developing, you're making new connections. So stop when you're walking and have just have a look around, even for a couple of minutes. And... The easiest one, when I suffered anxiety, the easiest one for meditation for me was breathe, just breathing in. Wim Hof again. You know, what cannot be taken away from you that easily? Your breath. And the one it's so simple, but we miss it, don't we? And this was a really simple one for when I got a little bit stressed, was breathing through your nose. And all I want you to think about is what's the temperature of the air? So do it now. And when you breathe out again, what's the temperature like? And obviously the temperature going out is warmer. All I'm asking you to do is pay attention to that temperature. Now you're focusing on, well, what is it like? And you're noticing it. But we rush through our lives every day, doing things. We're eating quickly. We're moving things around the house. We're getting on with our jobs, doing things quickly without stopping to notice and be a little bit calmer. Like you know, even just unscrewing the top of a bottle. So much you could put into that that just says, I'm paying attention to this at the moment. Yeah, I've got other things on my mind. And my emotions are not where I want them to be, but... You don't have to rush. Obviously, your chimp brain's going, quick, 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 get out of them, run away. And your body with the cortisol, stress hormones, and adrenaline, and your blood pressure up, you're feeling that as well. And your brain can then say, oh, you're feeling a bit on edge. Better be watching out then for the danger because you're already queued up for it. We're looking out for tea, yeah, because that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. I'm never going to open a bottle of water the same. <laughs> no, I think we go to the next, I'm going to the next one. What is a favourite quote or saying that if you could share with everyone in the world, what is it and why? This is a Swedish proverb. And I found it in a book called You Keep Calm and Carry On. It's <laughs> okay. always good to have next yeah. to your bed. And it's, you are the blacksmith of your own happiness. I like that. What do you take from that? Initially, when I first read it, I thought, nah. I know there's other things there which can make you make your life less happy than you would like it to be. 
But it comes back to Viktor Frankl again. What is your attitude towards this? What's your, how do you make meaning of what's going on? I like the word blacksmith, not because it's something to do with metal and it's, Sheffield. But it's, the word, but, it's, but it's the words that come off the back of the word blacksmith, isn't it? Yeah. And so, yeah, I think I've got a visual thing of you hammering something. So there might be anger there, there might be strength, there might be power. But to say you're creating something, you're forging it. Whatever you want your happiness to be, the situation you're in right now. You're forging it. Yeah, I love that word. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking of anvil and forge. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And sometimes you have to use a bit of power to make these things happen. There's an effort there as yeah. well. Yeah. That, yeah. You're and, creating your future, aren't you? Yeah. And that's what they mean by... Yeah. And it reminds me creating something, you're creating your future. And how many times do you have to hit that iron before it's in the shape of it, what you want it to be? Yeah. And it's got to get hot on it. Yeah. It's got to get hot, it's yeah. got to get, and it's got to get out of, out of shape on it at times. Energy, yeah. and that heating it up, and his energy and hitting that thing, and noise and sparks coming off. And it's a very visual thing. But it, I, it was Swedish, and I just thought, you're the only, you're the, you're the own blacksmith of your own happiness. Love that one. Love mm. that one. Here with the next one, Paul. Uh, yes, I, I'm going to love this one. In the last five years, Glenn, what new habit or belief has had the most profound effect on your life? The realisation that you're never truly alone. We all say we're individuals. We'll talk about identity earlier on, about you just be me by myself. We're all linked. We cannot exist. We're defined by everything around us. And then that, from that, you're never alone. So whether you're a man suffering from anxiety and you think, I can't go and talk to anyone because I haven't got anyone, you've got a neighbour next door. You may have never ever spoken to them before, but you know that you could knock on that door and say, could you help me, please, if you needed to? And if they were not sure what to do, but at least we're going into a different transaction now, they might say, well, can I get you some support? Can I phone a friend? Can I well, maybe, yeah, come in and have a cup of tea? Because you never know what's going to do. It's only our own barriers that make up that. I couldn't possibly go and do that. We'll just go and do it and see what's going to happen because you never know. So there's always someone else involved. And it might sometimes it might be a fictitious friendship. It might be you just having a distraction or a daydream about a character in your mind, someone you've read in the book. You can even distract yourself in that way, saying you, there are other ways you can bounce ideas off people who might not even exist. So you might have read a book in your early days. You might have a comic character. Dennis Menace, right? Let's just go Dennis Menace. I don't know where that came from. But you might think, okay, how would Dennis Menace deal with how I'm feeling right now? And if I asked you that, and you'd all come out with different answers. You know, I've not asked Dennis the Menace that. I'm just tapping into your creative brain. But it's a distraction technique in itself. And it helps you realise that you're never really alone. Even better if you can go and connect with a real person. And go and if you've got a legitimate reason. And you feel you need a legitimate reason to do it. Then we've got things like Andy's Man Club. And you know what it's about. And you come along. and Safe like shit. But if, if you didn't know that existed. How would you like to treat other people? If you're alone. And you're walking somewhere and you just feel you wanted to, someone caught your eye contact as you're passing them. What would you do? Would you go, would you smile? Would you say hello? Would you speak? If there was a dog, would you stop and say, oh, lovely day today, isn't it? Oh, what sort of dog's that? And then you're in a connection with someone and that's all it takes. So I was talking last week about loneliness and they were saying the research, loneliness at work, the most important isn't about family and social ties, it's what they call weak ties. And it might be you work in a big corporate office or you work in a factory and there's one person on the security gate or the reception who you don't know the name, they work there and you see them and you go in the morning, you just nod at them and we say, All right, yeah. And that's the only connection you have. But that strength, that weak tie, if you've got several of them, that's a greater predictor of well-being than the feeling that you have to have two or three deep friendships in that business. So there's that sense of familiarity in your chimp or your emotional brain is saying, do I know where I am? Am I feeling safe here? All these faces here who I've never met until an hour ago, I'm feeling a little bit more secure and connected. 
So that sense of you can make a connection anytime, anywhere with anyone. Love that. I, think, I think you're totally right there. Yeah. But I think that's the, I think that's human's biggest skill that we have over animals. We're able to visualise ourselves. You mentioned in a different situation, visualising yourself playing a different character. What would this other person do in that situation? How can I bring that into my business, my life, yeah. my personal life? And I think that's one of the biggest skills we have, but we yeah. don't use it enough, I would say. It's a coaching coaching technique you can use for sort of creative problem solving. You can say, you've got this problem, this thing. What would Richard Branson do? Yeah. And I'm not asking you about Dennis the Menace, and the two aren't related, I just have to point it out. <laughs> I'd love to see what's what, 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 Dennis Menace, yeah. that'd be quite a cool yeah. one. I brought him onto the broad table. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, what would Richard Branson do? So you bring out this idea of uh, where's the successful entrepreneur who's been there, seen who's done it, who's dyslexic, he's had barriers to overcome himself, and he's a lot of support for young people to say, don't worry about it, there are ways and means of you can fulfill your potential because it's already there. It's a shown technique because it's, it's sparking off creativity in your brain without Richard Branson being involved, because it yeah. could be expensive. And you're coming up with solutions. Where did that come from? It came from your brain, not no one else's brain. And that's the, a, a huge skill we none of us use enough. Yeah. Uh, where are we going next? I think, I think you that. That's my thing, yeah. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself at 18? What advice maybe should have been ignored? But you never know how much time you have. So never leave until tomorrow something you can do. That was another hard question, because I think about when I was 18, I wouldn't listen to it anyway. That is the oxymoron, though, isn't it? That is the challenge. So, you know, that... The other one to put is that true friends stick around. So make the effort when you're around that age to make sure you keep in touch with those people. I've just got in touch with a couple of guys who hadn't seen since I was 22. I used to live in Canterbury and my mum and dad moved to Leeds. I went away to Russia, well, Kiev, and so I did a degree in Russian during the communist era. When I came back, my parents had moved and they didn't tell me. God, that was uh, <laughs> so we moved to Leeds. And then I lost contact with my friends in Canterbury and they were in my sort of formative years. I left school, failed my A-levels. Didn't know what I wanted to do. It was on, meant to be on the gap year, but I left Polytechnic and I was low and looking around and couldn't get a job anywhere. And I bumped into these two characters who lived in the street next to me. I've never seen them in my life before. Apart from the older brother who'd been to school with me. He was four years older than me, but I didn't know he recognised me somehow. Anyway, that year was my formative year of you know, being in work. I was in the TA. I was running, got me into running, got me into in, running from pub to pub mainly. <laughs> got interested in girls, all that sort of thing. And... Now my own kids are sort of 18, 19, 20, and it's summertime. I'm looking back and having memories of what it was like when I was 18, 19 years old. So I've missed these guys, and I thought, well, how can I track them down? I won't say what the names are, but they're very generic common names. So if you put it into Facebook, you get 3 million results come back. And I couldn't find them on LinkedIn, couldn't find them anywhere. But I remember their sister got married, and I remember her husband's name being a pilot in the RF. So I Googled him, and lo and behold, up he comes. He runs his own flight training company. So I sent an email to the contact and say, you might remember me, you might not, but I remember your two brothers-in-law and I'm trying to get in touch with them. Could you put them in touch? So he put me back in touch and we've hooked up and it's almost like we're just having the same conversation. Like wow, awesome. Back awesome. in age, yeah, extreme, 22 years yeah, old. extreme example of that. It's brilliant. Yeah. So one of them lives down in Hampshire, the other one lives in Czech Republic, comes over. So we're going to see each other in September. But just remembering the emotions that drives 30, 30 40 years later is still important and that true friends stick around. So keep look after your people from those ages, around 18 years old, and make sure you keep those relationships in a state of disrepair, which means you've got to keep, keep them in touch and keep them in contact.
which is a great okay. tip for all listening. You've just inspired me to reach out to a couple of old connections. I think that's it. Thinking of you. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, fant- yeah, fantastic. We all at times feel burnt out, unfocused, unenergized, overwhelmed. What is it that you do to get yourself back online or if helpful, what sort of questions you ask yourself? You usually get that in that situation because there's a lack of perspective. Everything's a priority. Everything, everything, everything. You have to do all these things. You have to be successful. You have to, and it's, it's always there all the time. I love it. So ingrained upbringing, isn't it? A culture around us that says you've got to win, you've got to be successful, you've got to achieve. So I realize that usually I haven't got perspective in the moment. And if I'm feeling that way, then someone's got to give. And if I'm going to take my own medicine and practice what I preach, I have to say, you know, what do you think is going to be the worst situation out of this? What's the catastrophe that could come? What's the worst that could happen? So I've got to put myself through that and practice and say, okay, well, if I could achieve one thing today and not all these things, which one would be the most important? Of all the things you wanted to achieve today, what things would you drop off the end of your priority list? Because it can't all be priority. And I think a lot of organizations struggle with this because no one wants to say, no, I don't want to do this work or no to the boss. They want to say, yeah, I agree with all the things I've got to do, but I can't do all of them. So which one's the most important? And in fact, how many of these things are actually in your control? And what if something happened that changed the priority immediately? Would you be precious about that project that last week was great and now this week's no longer important? So recognizing that and stepping back and saying, okay, what little things could I achieve today that's going to be done to a good enough standard by my standards and will give me a sense of satisfaction. And sometimes it is doing admin. You know, tomorrow is month end, so I've got accounts to do, do it all myself. And uh, you know, painful. I don't really look forward to it, but I'll have Katy Perry hot and cold on. <laughs> yeah. um, while, was, while, while you're outside with yeah. the tomatoes, yeah, <laughs> and I'll be avoided. So I think I should have those on the <laughs> spreadsheets. But no, yeah, that, that thing of and then stopping to recognize that five years ago, I was burnt out and I did get exhaustion. I was told by a doctor, you have got exhaustion. I'll come out later on, but recognize the thing, I'm not feeling that way today. And that was back then. And there, for the grace of God, go on. I'm stronger, better, better informed but still recognize that it's not about resilience, about you you bounce back tougher. You don't, you, bank, you bounce back, you come back a little bit graded, a little bit deflated, a little bit worn, but wiser. So taking those moments to think, okay, am I getting a bit too tired? Um, you know, I'm tired, tired today. I've been repairing a brick wall yesterday and I'm aching in places where I didn't think I would ache, but I woke up this morning thinking, oh, I'm feeling quite low, but why is that? So recognizing life is like, waves things go up and down all the time you just be able, to, be able to take that time out love that one okay it's in the next one paul we all at times feel bent out unfocused uh, wrong, wrong one paul i know I've, oh sorry i'm tired of answering that one <laughs> it was when i, I picked up on what you've said that, that Wait, because... can i just slip in because yeah. i missed one of my notes here. yeah one of the other things i have to say to someone yeah if you had a day off and you couldn't have email couldn't have a mobile phone what would you do for fun Oh, great. Well, because when you're parents and you've got family and all that sort of thing, you always feel on duty all the time. But if you could be, could be told you can go and do anything you want today, but you can't use a mobile phone, you can't use email, so you, no work can't get hold of you, what would you do? And then that, because when people get into burnout and exhaustion, the first thing they do is that they've got a sense to prove themselves and they work harder to prove themselves and then they neglect personal needs. Having fun, you, know, you make phones up. You can just above. Well, I'd love to, mate, but I've got this to do. Or you really want to spend some time cooking something you like to cook. Oh, I can't just go for the fast food. Why is that? Because I have to prove myself. So have a day where you're taking, you know, no, no longer immersed in anything. You're going being taken away from the digital connection. You've got to go and do something. What would it do? What would it be? For me, it'd probably be a walk. I think going on what you've just said there. In a, a few weeks ago, I, I went away with friends. When we had a few days away in Bakewell and I didn't take no technology with me at all. I took it, I gave my phone to my wife, I didn't take my laptop, I didn't 
do anything. I didn't connect with anybody. I made one text and that was it for the weekend. And I was very conscious that I wasn't using it. And do you know what? The, we had the best time because you was with each other mm. and you gave each other that attention. You weren't looking at your phone. You weren't texting. You weren't looking at your emails. It was just... We had a, we just had a fantastic time. And but, I, but things linked to that as well, because I knew he was really stressed because you had a big project on the Monday. Yeah. And he was like stressing that he wasn't going to go and he needed to work it all. And he was in a right tizz with himself. And what was amazing to watch him come back, you come back and you got into the office really early, didn't you, on the Monday? Yeah. And I'd spoke to him because we share, he shares a bit of office space from us and I'd gone over to him. And everything he was whinging about on the Thursday, Friday, it got done. And it was amazing. You just got out of your own way, didn't you? Yeah, I just, mm. I just got it out the way. Just focused and it just... You get it out, don't you? And it just re-energizes you again. And it's just like the question there. It re-energizes you again. Where you come back, you've had the break, and you come back better and stronger and you go again. Mm. But you need that time to reflect, don't you? No, it's listen to your yeah. body. Self selfishy um healthy we, we, yeah. we, we said. I said it's I said even boxers get get time between rounds. There's a minute, isn't it, between three three minute rounds? Yeah. Even they get time off. And they get someone to squirt juice in their mouth as well. Love it. But we beat ourselves up constantly. Constantly, constantly, constantly. You've got to have a, a minute where you say, okay, get my breath back, feel a bit better around that, have some rest, have some me time, and then start preparing for when you're going to start again. Yeah. So research into holiday, summer holidays, suggests that you should have three weeks because it takes you a week to wind down. Get off, yeah. About a week to really enjoy, and then there's another week when you start thinking about, mm, what's going on? Now, I used to work with some recruitment consultants, and they would take their phones with them on holiday. I'm on holiday next week, but you can email me. Well, why do I want to do that? Yeah, because they're obviously looking for a close for a deal, and that means a lot to them. So you think, well, okay, that's your value set. Nothing right nor wrong about it, but they they've got more motivational value on receiving an email to say that the candidate's going for a job or not than they have over the holiday. So in a way, it's half a holiday. Yeah, but if you still get stressed by it, then no is it having the right effect? Yeah. I'm going to hit you with the next question again. <laughs> <laughs> Who in the world, Glenn, would you like to interview, past or present, and why? Well, I put down two people because I interpret it in the way I want it. And you would, yep. one of them you would have heard with, who are present, Sir Lenny Henry. Oh, yeah. yeah, I like Sir um, Lenny Henry. Because every time I see him on TV and he's talking about the race side of his experience and the books he's written about it, I remember being at Blackpool when I was nine or 10, and he was, he had just won, was it New Faces or whatever yeah. it's called? Just won that. And he was on the stage of this sort of variety act. And he was 16 years old and I was 10. So he's massively old. He's a big grown up. But I, that was the first time I've really seen someone who I was around about my age, who I could relate to, who was on the stage. And I seen him on television. It was massive. It was a big thing. There was other bands and people playing, but I didn't really have a connection there. But there's this guy by himself doing stand up and doing impersonations. And now he is live on the stage in front of me. But what I like even more about it is his attitude towards education. We talked about getting into education later in life and changing track and learning new things. He went to Open University and he got into reading Shakespeare. He, he said he absolutely hated Shakespeare until he got immersed in it. And then he ends up being in the Royal Shakespeare Company. Yeah. So just, I like his energy, I like his enthusiasm. What I liked most about his, his sketches was how he took the mickey out of his mum and dad's voices. Yeah, and I thought, oh, you've got a right to do that. And he's doing it in a way that says it's all right to laugh at your parents and but also love them for the fact that they shaped you and they brought you up. and. With all the little quirks and quibbles and the idiosyncrasies that we pick up from our families, that is tradition there, and that was our security blanket. So I like him for that. 
The other one you've never have heard of, it's Lieutenant General Sir Archibald Nye. No, 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 not no, if you've heard no, him. No, no, okay. No, no, no. So he, in World War II, he was what they call a V-SIGS. So he was Vice Chief of the Imperial General Staff. So the Chief of the Imperial Staff, his boss was Field Marshal Alan Brooke. So he worked, he was the right-hand man to Winston Churchill during the whole of World War II. So in fact, he, they say that Alan Brooke ran the war and Archibald Nye ran the army. And the army was massive back then, 400, 500,000, not 83,000 it is today. But what I liked about him was only two years ago did I really understand who he was. I knew he went to the school, same school as me. I went to a boarding school run by the army. So he was like a state school, but boarding, but for army people. And you could only go there if your dad was a soldier, not an officer. So my dad was a sergeant. I, I went in as an officer later on. But this guy, he was there as a soldier's son. His dad had been a regimental sergeant major. He joined in, must have gone to school in about 1905 or something like that. Went to World War One uh, as a private soldier, got to a sergeant. Within a year, they commissioned him. To go from being lowly, lowly stock of just being a, just a soldier's son all the way up to being Lieutenant General in World War II is a massive achievement. Whilst he was doing that, he also qualified as a barrister. Well, <laughs> when he was 32 or something, yeah. No, there, was, there, was, there was no e-learning back then either. No, so he qualified in the inner temple in London as a barrister, still in the army. And I'm wondering, yeah, whether well, he was paid to do that or he did it himself. And he was a teetotaler. So all those sort of cultural things of the military being, you know, you know known for its sort of drinking culture parts of it, but being, how did he fit in the officer's mess side of it where he had, didn't have that background? And that's changing a lot now in the military. I experienced similar, a little bit of it, because I hadn't come from an officer background. But he, the fact he, oh, I remember his name was, there was a school assembly hall in our school and it was called the Nye Hall. And I had a portrait of him there and we just thought, oh, some old bloke, and as you do when you're 14 years old, some old bloke in a, in a you know, military uniform. But he'd been through all that. So I'd like to interview him and ask you, so what was your experience and what drove you and what were the ups and downs and your great breaks? When, when the war ended, he was asked by Nehru, first prime minister of India, to become the high commissioner. So he ended up living out there until oh, he, he retired in 1990-something. He died in 67. But he was just another example of someone who's made it despite all the... Everything against him. All, all the backgrounds of people, judgments that people make. Yeah, we can't do that because you're from here. Yeah, you know, we didn't. And he, no glass ceiling on him. Yeah. And at, at a really early age, um, 1914, he joined up. Wow. He, I mean, he's lucky just to be alive from the war itself yeah. as well. Yeah. It's just for, yeah. like a miracle. Um, yeah. No, I love that one. Tim, um, with the last one. So. Oh, yeah, the last one is. Last one. Is there anything we should have asked but didn't? Or, you know? Um, should we well, yeah, but, on we've as well? You can ask me one, I'll give you five answers to that one. Yeah, based on the angle towards men's male mental health, the question you could say, what was your darkest day and how did you come back into the light? Or what makes a great day for you? So I'll answer the last one first. What makes a great day? A long walk involving a map and compass. I love being, uh, it's taken me a long time to realise this. I love being lost and then finding myself again. So I do orienteer because I'm going from A to B and you're going over a moor or a mountain and you're not quite sure if you got there or not. And you're having to use those skills and then finding it, you get a, a dopamine from the serotonin rush when you think, oh, I know where I am now. And then I've got to go from next. So there's constant moments of losing yourself, which I think is what we do every day. You expect something to happen and then it goes off that way. And you're a bit... Through that then, so how do, you, how do you do that? How do you go about getting yourself in that lost situation? My map reading skills, very easily. <laughs> <laughs> well, with, with the orienteering. Yeah, well, so I mean, like you got, say you're going out this afternoon to, yeah. to do exactly that. Just walk me through that. Around Sheffield, they've got several virtual courses in the parks just near me. And you, there's a, an app called Map F Run. And I'm not sure what the F stands for. Sometimes I can guess what it might be, <laughs> but it hasn't gone so wrong so well. And you put on location services and it would, you can print a map off and you can just run from 
place to place and the mobile phone will make a noise go, Bloop, when it tells you that you're at the right place. And then it logs it all and then when you finish, press finish and it, it uploads your time and the places you went to, the scores, onto a league. I love that. Compare yourself. Yeah. I've only mean, done it once. Be good with the kids. But I used to do mountain marathons, two-day mountain marathons with another friend of mine and you carry a rucksack and you got your tent and your cooking kits and rations and all that sort of thing. And you could choose how long you run for. We used to do six hours on day one, five hours on day two, and you carry your tent and you go over a mountain and you get to a campsite in the wild, middle of nowhere, stay there for a night, and then next morning get up and run another five hours back again, picking at the checkpoints as you go along. So you get an orienteering map, which are all different colours and are like normal maps, and uh, you can choose where you go from it. Say so you might say there's a point, there's a control here for 50 points, but it's up the top of that mountain. So you've got to work out how much effort and time are going to take to get up there compared with down along the river, there's five of them, but there are only five points each. So you've got to work out your route and you get in on time. So if you come in over time for every minute, you lose two points, I think it is. So you could put a lot of effort at getting up the mountain and then come in 20 minutes late and lose it all. That's good. That's probably why my friend doesn't do it anymore. <laughs> I was going to say, we've seen boys, yeah. but I don't, yeah. I'm not too sure about that one. Map, re <laughs> map yeah. reading's not easy, is it? We did lightweight walk and there was a, guy ex ex military ash and he took the lead and he was absolutely fantastic how he read these maps but it was either we we'll go down that road and it's 10 mile or we we'll go over that and it's five it was horrendous absolutely <laughs> i yeah. loved him at the end when we finished but yeah. it was horrendous <laughs> It was funny. But yeah. I love the whole idea of the yeah. what you're thinking, yeah. you know, getting back to track there is getting lost and finding yourself. Yeah. I love that yeah. love that analogy. So when you know it's finished, the other two things that make a good day, a big pub with a big open fire, oh, oh, pint of Guinness, oh, yes, I'm good food, live music and com company. There you are. It. Yeah. We've got a night out book there. A friend of mine, she's into acupuncture and nutrition. She said, you should do coaching walking, taking people out for a walk, which brings me on to the other question, which was, what was your darkest day and how did you come back? About five years ago, February 2017, I had a massive drop in confidence, like a plane going into turbulence. I just left chip management. I set up my own business and out of the blue, I don't know where it came from, but I had all these intrusive thoughts that I would never be able to get up on the stage and give a keynote talk. I'd given 350 in three years. Which, which blows my mind because you was one of the best speakers I've seen. You was incredible. Um, and which yeah. just blows my mind to think you would think that. And because it wasn't my book and it wasn't my story and it wasn't my model, but I thought I used to get, get over yourself in that one. You're here to deliver that message and it could be any. I'm not a researcher. I've got master's in occupational psychology, but I'm not a researcher. So I'm not putting my own book out there and saying, I've done this. And so all of a sudden these intrusive thoughts and doubts come in. I would be waking up at two o'clock in the morning, heart, boom, 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 as if you've got a burglar in the house and my ears, you could just, all you can hear it, lie down, turn over, toss and turn and put your head down on the pillow and all you can hear and feel is your heart beating. And I, I made a big mistake of not getting up and doing something about it. You should get up, go and put telly on, do the ironing, do all the things you put off all the time because I'll get you through it. But I didn't, I just lay there and three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock and eventually wake up and I had this thought that if I stood up, walked out onto a stage, then I, I would trip over, I'd wet myself. I had all these, you think about it, these intrusive thoughts. And I just got more and more tired. And then it was one weekend, my daughter was learning to ride her bike. So I was out in the street with her, just looking out for cars and she was going up and down. And I just felt absolutely numb. No, no expression, absolutely just deadpan. Couldn't see any joy in life, really. And I was getting worried that my mental frame of mind was going to put me in a danger place that I might go and try something silly. I wasn't thinking about it, no ideation there, but I just thought, you don't know who you are and you're not in control. And it was just 
nothing there. And then a mate of mine came around the corner. He lives nearby and his son had gone to school with my son from age six. I knew him reasonably well. And he came around, he said, you're right. And I said, yeah, mm, 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 whatever. How are you? He goes, mm. So we both started having a mutual mm, moment. He'd taken redundancy after 22 years in the company and thought it was going to be golf for the rest of his life. And then he finally, suddenly found himself with a loss of identity and he was really low. And he said, I'm going to be doing my CV, but I don't know what to do because I've done one for 22 years. I'm going to be having job interviews, can't find a job, don't know what to do. And so we fancy going for a walk sometime. So the next week we went for a walk every day with a, he was walking a dog for a friend of his and we went around the park through the woods, through the trees, through the rivers, everything. And I just talked to him. So the two things was it helped him because I was asking questions about perspective, but it took my mind off me. And I came back and thought, oh, I feel really good. But I've been talking about him. Why do I feel good? Because I realized I wasn't stressed. I wasn't, uh, and the anxiety went on for about another three months, but I wasn't going to bed at night thinking, I'm so tense, I'm so nervous and everything. I mean, I ended up going to the GP with my wife, she's a nurse, and going for an emergency meeting, and I said to the doctor, I just think I'm going to collapse if I go on stage and I won't be out of my heart racing so much. And he said, you haven't got clinical depression, I think you've got exhaustion. I said, all I want to do is sleep like you've just gone out of a hot bath or you've just been in a pub with a pint of Guinness and you've had a long walk and you just feel that relaxed or you've been in a flotation tank. That's all I want to feel like. And he said, well, I'll give you sleeping pills and take them for a while and see how that settles you down and I'll give you diazepam which will slow your heart rate. He said, but don't take it. Have it in your pocket if you need be. And if you really feel that you're going to give a talk and your heart's racing so much, you need to calm down, just take one of those and you'll be fine. So we picked the prescription up and it was a, an inset day at school. I can remember it vividly. We went to Clumber Park near Worksop to go for a walk around the lake. And my daughters went off cycling and my son and I went for a walk and I've forgotten to bring the prescription with me. So the pills were back in Sheffield. And I was still, what they call hypervigilant, like that, twitchy. We were in the Clumber Park, and it was ducks and geese and nature. It couldn't be anything more threatening than that. And all we had was a bag of mint imperials. So I had these mint imperials, and we were just eating mint imperials. And I had one in pocket, and I was using it like a worry bead. And that became my crutch, my placebo diazepam. So I never took the diazepam, got rid of it. Sleeping pills, three days, I felt a little bit okay. But it's just like alcohol, really, so not best thing to have and I started feeling better and I got my strength back I got my sleep patterns back and I was able to put things in perspective along with my friend who I carried on walking with and the dog the dog didn't say much but <laughs> at least it, yeah, it gave you unconditional love yeah and the lesson that came out for me from that getting back into the light was anyone can suffer from this anyone can have ups and down moments we do all the time Sometimes you go really low. Sometimes you don't go so low. Sometimes, other times it's really high. But you can always talk to someone about it. You can always engage someone else rather than assume that they're okay. And if they just give you the fine, you say, how are you? Yeah, fine. Feeling inwardly negative every day. What have you got on this week? What's the biggest thing? What are your challenges? What project have you got? If you imagine you couldn't work on your project this weekend and you went to Bakewell for a weekend, how would it be on Monday? It'd probably be all right, actually. Yeah. So what advice would you give to someone else? And the talking side of it, that's what saved me. That was five years ago. Interestingly, I stumbled across the diary entry. I was on Outlook trying to work out why I couldn't see all my backlog diary. For some reason, I stumbled across this one entry in my personal diary, and it said, the day when the intrusive thought stopped and calm resumed. And I'd forgotten I'd written it, but I put it in, I read on the notes, and it had words to the effect of, I'm no longer having looking at my mirror reflection and thinking, who is that person? Realizing it is not me, it is my reflection. And that everything changes every day, but I'm no longer having these intrusive, negative thoughts. If it's all going to go wrong, you're going to lose your house. You're going to be begging for money outside Sheffield station. 
which was going through my brain like that. The brain is so powerful. And thank you for the moment out of sharing that because I think this is why we're so passionate about the work we do at Andy's Man Club because you've just been vulnerable. You've just shared something so huge for you in the line of work you do. But I think it's one of the most, you bring your power back when you're vulnerable, I think. Mm. We see it all the time in the man club because we are exactly what's coming back into my mind is we are human. And I love that blacksmith analogy you give me. Mm. And you said we come back. And for me, you come back and you're molded in a different shape this time though. So you think of the, all the tools that you've got and now you've been for that experience, the gift you've got's just got even bigger, which I, I think is incredible. I, I just want to thank you for sharing that, Tap Paul. I've absolutely loved it, Glenn, and just listening to you, I like the blacksmiths and I'll, I'll take that forward and hopefully I'll forge my future and I'll be stronger for listening to you, Glenn, so thank you. Thank you. I think I'm going to have to listen to this back myself and take some notes because there was a lot of things yeah. there where you've made me think. And, uh, I'm good he's got to go because we've got to get him on a train. Yeah, we've yeah. got to get him on a train, but we could be here for hours, couldn't we? We'll have to go on a, one of these hikes, I think, and have a Guinness. And yeah. By the fact, oh, we should organise something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to walk in some yeah. amazing walks up near you, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, this isn't going to be the last time we speak, and this is going to add loads of value to our community. So thank you from the bottom of check yeah. um, coming in. That's Leon checking out. Sam checking out. Paul checking out. Glenn checking out. Welcome to The Hack, the straight-talking smart tech podcast where we discuss the ever-changing world we live in today. It's time to start thinking differently. So tune in and buckle up for some home truths as Hull and East Yorkshire's very own digital tech experts talk transformation and change, focusing on people, process and technology. 